Well, hello you. Hello you. How How's are things? You? <laughs> you crossed. Uh, I'm quite bouncy and excitable because I've got an awful lot going on in my life, which is all good. Uh, but it just, yes, it feels a little bit like some moments my head might explode. It's all happening everywhere all at once. Y- yes, it is. Yes. If only I were Michelle Yeo, then, then maybe I would cope a bit better. And breathe. Did you did you see the did you see the um, everything everywhere all at once film yet? Yes, I oh. I lobbied for Joe and I to go and see it at the cinema when it came out. And we almost never go to the cinema. I have to pick my films quite carefully because Joe's Joe's kind of not. There's quite a lot of stuff that doesn't really work for him. But we both agreed it was absolutely fantastic. Marvelous. So did we actually? We were really excited from the first time we saw the trailer. Like, oh, this is going to be amazing! And they came out of the cinema, just going, oh, brain hurts. Yeah. And then watched it again. Um, I think we watched it again then with my parents. So we we were kind of like, you're going to really enjoy this. And both my parents came up with, oh, brains hurt. We're like, it's fine. <laughs> Second time, but what a film! What an absolutely yes. brilliant film on so many levels, and best Oscar result ever, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, so so I totally missed the Oscars. What was what did they do? What did they get? I think they got seven out of nine or something like Amazing. that. I mean, I know it's also a Star Trek character, but I think it was something like seven out of nine. Michelle Yeoh, uh, best actress. Um, I think it got best picture, best editing. It just did just loads of loads of brilliant stuff, and then obviously, yeah, and it just it's done so much good, and a really interesting film for cinema because it's there are other contenders that are films about cinema and all of that but this was just pure visual and storytelling spectacle but underneath just a very beautiful story so oh, I'm so I'm so pleased you've seen it not a lot oh, of people was... I know have seen it and got through it and not a lot of people who still got through it have liked it oh it, I thought it was just incredible in fact I so I had a similar feeling of awe and kind of like wow so glad I went to see that at the cinema so glad I just went to see it. Similar feeling about that that I had about The Matrix when it first came out. The Matrix kind of back back when it came out, and I, and I was much younger then as well. Um, because God was I don't know twenty years ago more. Oh, anyway, when it came out, yeah. I was just I my mind was absolutely blown because I think there was a lot about the storytelling and there was a lot about the concept and a lot about the. There's a lot about the kind of thinking, the philosophy behind it as well, as well as the special effects and a lot of the techniques that they used that were just, it just all came together in one kind of beautiful, very new and novel feeling as well as spectacularly done thing. And for, for slightly different reasons, um, I, I had a similar sense afterwards about everything, everywhere, all at once. And 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 it it's probably I've probably seen three films in maybe I can only think of one other film that I felt so strongly about and that was for very different reasons so maybe only three films in my lifetime I felt like that about. Wow, I mean that's quite a recommendation in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, it, it was absolutely spectacular. Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> I know, brilliant. It's, there's just such good performances and I read something um, after, I didn't watch the Oscars, but read something afterwards in kind of Michelle Yeoh's speech and obviously speaking as um, someone from kind of a particular cultural heritage, she's just like, we have now arrived. 
Yeah. This is us. No more kind of supporting actor, actresses role. This is a moment to really celebrate the kind of Asian American experience. And I was like, yeah, actually. And she's great. I've seen her in so many things, but she's brilliant. Another really cool thing. Sorry, go for it. Oh, no, she's just fantastic. And, and, um, I, I read a fantastic interview with the with the actress that plays her daughter and you know she was talking about the Asian American experience and the thing about you know she's like as far as she was concerned the way the family was portrayed had you know was very very much her experience of growing up as a second generation Asian American and you know that the, the experiences and the way the kind of the, some of the family dynamics and the way you kind of interact with the rest of America for example that you know she yeah so it was just stunning just stunning on so many levels I, I mean I love the way it dropped across languages and so one minute it was I think I think Cantonese my brain's gone, so I can't remember exactly which, which dialect. I think it's kind of speaking Cantonese, and then a couple of English words, and then back into English, and back into kind of idiomatic American, and back mm. in. And as a viewer, you're switching modes. And that was one of the things I found really tiring at the start of the film, was actually brain-switching modes in between reading and listening as well. Mm. So it's a very different... So when someone's speaking in a, a different tongue and it's subtitled, it's a really different brain process to read it and pay attention to what's on screen, and kind of hear the sound coming in, and then switching within a sentence. And I've spoken to lots of people who are multilingual and who, who do that. And I've, I've got family who are multilingual. And when you used to go and visit them, they would switch languages, sentence by sentence, or in the middle of sentences. Wow. And I was just like, wow, just the patchwork and bringing words together and stuff. So but as a viewer, that was quite, oh, I can say discombobulating. I was like, oh, I haven't said that for a long time. <laughs> It kind of, but really put you in a different space because obviously normally you're watching a film and it's in, let's be honest, most of the time it's in English. Um, and even if you're or if you're reading a subtitled film, you're reading the subtitles in your language of choice, and so you don't have your brain doesn't have to switch in between two different inputs. And so just doing that afterwards, I was reflecting and actually people of different cultures and heritages and so on, how interesting, how difficult in some cases it must be when you're in a, a majority different culture, to have that language switch. And for the first time, I, I actually kind of felt that coming out. And I don't know if that's just me putting something of um, my thought thinking into it, but what a film. What a film. And I can really recommend to the production house behind it. It's A24. And we've seen several films they've put out and none of them have been duff. We've all come away from each one and goes, that was amazing. So a bit like kind of Electra Records back in the day. Mm. Seek out A24 films. I think they're also behind the menu, which is just fabulous. Um, yeah, A- A24, go and check them out. Really cool little production house. Doing some really fantastic stuff. Mm. I, that, that That's really, I really like the... Um what you were just saying about the kind of you know, brain switching or code switching or something switching and and the the cognitive load that it you know that it places on you and to draw a parallel between you know the experience of being in the majority group or culture um compared to being in a minority group or culture and because that's something that I'm sure we've touched on that before. I think I shared some poetry 
in one of our I can't remember the details but she had, I remember I had a similar I had a similar experience that you've just described of feeling I discombobulated for the um for the reason of feeling I wasn't in a familiar landscape which as a fluent speaker of English English is my native you know language um that's rare for me I'm rarely in a situation where I feel out of my depth that I'm in it and I'm familiar and the other time that I experienced that was when I was in the middle of Thailand um when my partner and I we went to Thailand for well, the reason we went there was that my cousin was getting married and his um fiance now wife is Thai um and we you know we went we went there and we traveled around a bit we went to a couple of towns that really weren't on the tourist trail and I yeah I can remember I've never felt as out of place anywhere as I have in in this kind of town in the middle of Thailand. And it, it was it what was interesting was just the kind of continuous low level sense that things were not all kind of not comfortable. Um, okay. And that's not to say that I felt in, in any danger and it wasn't that, but it was just kind of a very low level sense of don't feel like I belong here you know and for for me i think what it what that underlined was just how much i take that for granted okay in you know in my everyday life the privilege that, you know that i experience that i i don't feel like that so that's kind of i'm kind of pulling together those threads and thinking about you know how fantastic it is to be given the experience of not being in the dominant group or not being part of the majority um because otherwise you know, you kind of, you, you, we've got, I've got no way of conceptualising what, you know, what it's like being not, not, you know, white, middle class and, and, and well-educated and, and feeling therefore comfortable in, in many situations. Of course. And yeah, and you did that so well. And I think I mean, for me, as well, one of my uh, favourite films is Blade Runner. And of course, one of the mm. actors in Everything Everywhere All At Once, James Hong, the grandfather, is in Blade Runner. He's the oh. ice guy. Oh. And I was like, because I was watching, I was like, "That's James Hogg. That's James Hogg. Oh my god, he was in Blade Runner." <laughs> I was very excited, but I mean, yeah, and just to have that win, I think at the Oscars, which yeah. has had its issues, let's be honest, um, but also just as a film that's not—I would not call it an accessible film. Mm. It's not a La La Land, which I did watch, didn't particularly enjoy, but there you go. Um, it's not a. It's not a film that you can sit back on. It's not a film that, I don't know, something like, I mean, I remember sort of, I saw Schindler's List at the cinema and came away and like, oh, that's crikey. just something. And as you saw it with a friend of our parents who was, who was half Jewish. Um, and yeah, talking talking about that. But that is obviously, that is a real kind of film, a real kind of spectacle. And although it is difficult to watch, it maintains an emotional kind of punch to this day. One can sit and watch it relatively straightforwardly and you look at some of the other films that have won over the years and yeah you can not all of them are kind of oh i've had a hard week i just want to put the tv on most of them are kind of big epics but you can sit down and watch them fairly straightforwardly whereas everything ever all at once requires a lot a lot of work the cognitive like you're saying the cognitive switching the load switching mm. the code switching just paying attention Actually, and even I mean, even just watching the trailer where Michelle Yeoh kind of gets pulled through multiple scenes and it's flashing and it's all going on, that requires a lot of work to sit and work out what on earth is happening in front of you, and accept it and go with it. And actually, just having that as 
the standout film. When you think of uh, Parasite that won, oh lord, a couple of years ago. Brilliant film. Love Parasite. I've seen it I many, many times. I still haven't seen Parasite. <gasps> oh, you the must. annoyance of our teenage daughter who, well, she's not a teenager anymore, actually. She's gone out of the teenage years. And um, that, yeah, she can't believe that we haven't. She's told us so many times we need to watch it. She can't believe we haven't seen it. It's br- it is genuinely brilliant. But again, a film, and if you're happy to watch subtitles, it is a film that unfolds before you and visually doesn't take, visually it's beautiful, it's stunning, but it doesn't mm. take a lot of work. Your eyes don't feel assaulted by the end of it. <laughs> yeah, which, um. <laughs> yes, that feeling, being assaulted, and it's kind of it's kind of eyes and processing and cognition, isn't it? it? It does require, it requires a lot of, yeah, you have to keep up with it. And it requires you to kind of learn, I think, I think that film teaches you how to watch it while you're watching it. I think you kind of, yeah. once you've kind of got into the middle of it, I'm not saying it's easy, but you kind of you've kind of learned what the cues are and kind of bit what's good. What, oh, it means that when this weird visual kind of thing happens, like oh, okay, this is what's happening. Oh, it all makes sense. But yeah, it is it is brilliant. I mean, good. I mean, interesting as well. You've got um, the cultural storylines, you've got age storylines, you've got business mm. storylines, you've got a queer narrative that runs through it. Mm. There's so much that's packed into it, and it's just yeah. It's it's brilliant. I could I could yap on about it for hours. I won't. It's okay. <laughs> Thank but you. Not. What a lovely thing to talk about because I had I haven't thought about it lately because when was it? it came out the end of last year, last summer, last autumn. Oh, I think so. I can't I can't remember yeah. exactly. It had one of those weird releases. UK film industry releases are all over the place at the moment. So mm. I, I just can't I can't remember. I think it was out elsewhere long before it reached here. Mm. But yeah, it's just stunning. It is, it is. But it sort of ties in to something we wanted to talk about. Oh, okay. It's almost like we've done this before. Um, although we <laughs> didn't, did actually didn't expect to start with that. But oh, glorious! Could talk about film for hours. Um, untranslatable words. Oh, okay. I thought you might be going for the words connection. Um, and also, just thank you for just dropping that, dropping everything everywhere all at once because i got the reference immediately and i'm just yeah i really enjoyed following that with you but yes untranslatable words there you shared go. this rather lovely gem didn't you I, it popped up it popped up on something i'm an email i'm subscribed to can't remember which one might have been 10 things might not have been 10 things um but yes it's, it's a list it's on pockets which is still a thing we were having a chat before the um before the episode started pocket is still a thing for clipping links which is very Amazing. exciting I loved Pocket back in the day. It was I, I loved it too. I had loads of loads of stuff saved in it. It was my yeah, it was my repository for a long time. I know. I, I, had, I had Pockets. I had Evernotes. I had Keeps. I had one of the others. Anyway, the, the world the world changes. But yeah, so it, it pops up and it's it's a list of forty. It's a list of links to articles of fourteen untranslatable words uh, in English. I should say. Um, I'm sure English has got a lot of un- untranslatable words into other languages, but. You know, other languages say things so much better than we do at times. And I thought just share it because obviously, as a as a, a, a poet, you like you like the odd word. It has I, been I said. love words, and I love it's the, and it, it is. I the untranslatable words are particularly interesting because they are conveying something. You know, a very specific, um, a very specific thing that you can't easily just find the words for in another language. So it kind of suggests a different set of distinctions or, you know, it suggests a point of difference, doesn't it? 
which is which is absolutely fair it's reminding me of something that i can't properly remember but some work by and it was funny because i was just looking at the word ikigai and there's a an artist called um is it lucy irigay so there's there's a kind of kind of slightly reminded by the syllables in the japanese word um but I can't remember. But she did. She did some work. It was something about creating a new language. Oh, okay. I, I'll have to look that up for a future episode because I can't remember enough of it. Someone, it was an event I was at. Someone was talking about it. Very interesting, anyway. Nice. Mm. But back to untranslatable words. Back to untranslatable words. So go on, from this list of fourteen, which is a bit weird because I clicked the link, it said thirteen. But hey, you know, it's a word between friends. Do you have a favourite, Louise Winters? And we well, will share the link just, to for comments. I'm looking at them. I haven't had a proper look. Um, I do... Um, Namaste makes me laugh because I know people who've misused that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and, but that's part of the thing, isn't it? Part of what happens is that these words, you know, an untranslatable word... Any word, in fact, because we've talked about this kind of authenticity and artisanal bread, for example. (laughs) Words kind of take on this odd life of their own and this odd kind of resonance, um, which seems to seem sometimes seems to detract from the actual meaning or use of the word. So I'm kind of interested in the way that people latch onto a word like namaste, for example, and then kind of by taking it out of its context, it kind of somehow I mean, I know that language evolves, but there's a bit of me that thinks that there is an argument for saying that sometimes you do violence to it. Interesting. Let's explore that a bit more. How do you how do you mean? I think I know what you mean. But what what do you mean by do violence to it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Good for calling me on actually explaining what I mean by that because um, <laughs> I can feel it, but it's hard to okay. it's hard to put how does it how does it feel? Um. It feels like a kind of hollowing out of the word, of the word's meaning. And I think I think what it how that manifests is sometimes a word can be taken or can be used outside of its context. And it represents some dimensions of it. It starts to represent only some dimensions of its meaning very strongly and loses connection with other dimensions of its meaning. Um, namaste is not a great example because actually I can't really bring to mind I can't bring that to mind anymore where I've heard that but um, you know my mind's gone completely back but I know the one that we talked about before was we talked about artisanal um, because it becomes a kind of shiny badge of something that's cool instead of its kind of original meaning which is about you know craft and care and love and something that's made with love something that's made to be beautiful um something where there's you know an an artisan is someone who was trained for years in their craft to create something that both fulfills a function and is you know and is kind of beautifully made well designed so this kind of thing where you where everything becomes artisanal and when everything becomes artisanal then it kind of loses it loses the history and the context and and it kind of flattens the meaning of the word a bit becomes more two-dimensional that's that's kind of what i'm pointing towards 
Ah, I see. Interesting. I agree. Obviously, we will link to the the episode. It was that was mm. an old one. That was. I seem to remember us ranting about artisanally authentic something. That's right, authentic. I knew authentic. that was one of the words. I ask you. Although, to be fair, I've actually had to use authentic recently. I think. That was it, it yes. innovation. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we might have gone after that. I, I, know, I think there was one other. And to be fair, I think I've actually probably used all of them in a sentence more ironically recently as well. Um, though I, I think authentic seems to be having a comeback into its proper term. So I don't know whether it's been rehabilitated or what. But it's an interesting point about doing violence to language. I, I like that, actually. Because because language can do violence as well. But I like mm. that idea of doing violence and there's a, a beauty in it but at the same time there's that evolution and that non-staticness if you like the constant motion that kind of language is in mm. and how and and I know we, before we talked about kind of words and terminology being appropriated by different communities so one might think of um african-american community for example and the n-word which we shall not utter here mm. um how that has been reappropriated how a queer has been reappropriated by the lgbtqi plus community mm. um and kind of various other things so there's there is that kind of dynamism but it's interesting you know thinking about doing violence to, to language and what you're really making me think of there is if you do the violence to the language what do you do to the communities who speak that language if there's a systematic yeah. eradication i think we may have touched on this very briefly before but like the loss of first people's languages in america for example mm. if you eradicate those languages if you yeah take them take them away and the last speakers die out how does that affect how people see the world around them i mean i know the um i know nothing of the maori language but from what i understand from the narrative around it it's very descriptive mm. so it talks about it rather than just going place i don't know give it a name call it purple or something it will be something to do with the formation or the history and the the people's relationship to that place of course as soon as you wipe that out in linguistic i think someone termed it linguistic genocide you take away all those modes of thought and speech in fact we were talking about this we were talking about um you you brought something beautiful around places named after bird song oh that's yes that's right that was just a bit before Christmas, I think. We talked about Owls Water. Right. A lot has happened since then. Yes, Owls Water. The owls. Yes. yes. It was also, sure. you shared uh, what the Duck podcast that was, right. um, that explored, you know, the erasure of um, experience and history and context by renaming things. No, so That's it. Colonialist yes. renaming things. Um that's the one. We'll, we'll link to that one in the, the show notes as well. I knew it was sounding it was, it was familiar, but it's amazing how these things kind of come back through, weave back through as we do these episodes. The themes, themes like threads. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, but I'm curious to know. You said you had a favourite one, so I completely avoided and evaded your favourite question and totally changed the subject a bit. <laughs> what, what's your favourite from the list? So, mine. I, I spent I spent a while on this, and I really wanted it to be something else. But actually, the one I keep coming back to is, and I think you pronounce it, Firgun. Firgun. F-I-R-G-U-N. It's a Hebrew word, apparently. Um, and it describes taking pleasure in another's good fortune. The opposite of schadenfreude. Oh. And I'm like, I just keep coming back to that. Because I think that's a nice thing. And all the others are quite... There's some that are quite funny. And there's one about... There's one that made me laugh about... Um, I think it's a Finnish word. There we go. 
um, pants drunk, it translates as. Um, basically, <laughs> you're at home alone wearing your pants. It's American, so I'm not entirely sure if they're talking about undercrackers or um, trousers. Who knows? Separated by common language, really good linguistic blog if you're interested in the differences between American <laughs> English and British English. Um, but I just keep coming, pants drunk is hilarious, but I keep coming back just to this word that means taking pleasure in another's good fortune. Because I love doing that. It really it brings me so much joy when someone brings a, a lovely story, um, and I just wish more people would do it. So there you go. That from this little list, and at the bottom of the list there is another list of thirty eight words. And I did click on it and went. I still prefer feel good, feel good. And see, I would have overlooked that one, I think, because I was skimming quite briefly. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought my attention to that because something that's the opposite of Schadenfreude is wonderful to hear about, and I. Yeah, how how lovely because I'm I've actually I've I've started reading. Someone has lent me the book that uh, Nick Cave in conversation with the journalist um, Sean. Oh, I can't remember his surname. This is rubbish. It's on my bedside table. In my defence, I'm I'm reading it last thing at night. Um, but the 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 theme that's coming through strongly already, and I haven't read much of it, is just how not cynical Nick Cave is how he's he said several times he just doesn't have time for cynicism in his life anymore he just is far more open um and just you know it kind of because he's taught there's some musings from him on religion in, and and his latest album Ghostine which I I haven't I haven't listened to um is it very very good I, I had a feeling it, it yeah. must be um and and he's kind of he says he's very just very open to a lot of religious ideas and concept, which is knowing kind of having a view of Nick Cave from his earlier music making days. That seems quite surprising, honestly. Um, but part of his thing is that it's just it's he's just open and he he doesn't have time for cynicism and he's interested basically in whatever helps people, whatever works for people, whatever. Whatever gives life more meaning. Um, so, I, and I kind of feel that that's, you know, there's an interesting, there's kind of the polarity between Schadenfreude and Bergen is is kind of like part of that. You know, it's kind of the cynical and the Schadenfreude and the, you know, taking pleasure in, in another. We, we've all done it, taking pleasure in another person's pain. We've all done it. I'm sure I will do it more times in my life. Um, but, the other side of that if you know if, we've, if i were going to cultivate a, uh, an attitude that i feel is more in harmony with the world which is me which i would like to then i would be i'd be going more over to the fergan side so i really love that it's a very gentle word like so when I, I overlooked it the first couple of times on that list i was like oh the big words the silly words and then it just it was on those quiet ones that just sort of wove itself through like a thread i was like yes i want i want this i want the world to be more like this more fergan please mm. And actually, interesting. So the title of that article is doesn't feature the word Fergen at all, um, and doesn't. It, it says the you know, the opposite of Schadenfreude. So it's it's almost like that kind of lovely, gentle meaning is kind of not interesting enough. Is kind of is erased. Is kind of shoved out of the headline because you know it's not going to get our attention. So there's kind of an in, interesting thing about that as well. Well, that's the classic headline writing piece, and actually the classic kind of movie piece. Well, certainly movies are the same as everything else. It's because to get funding, and in headline terms to get clicks, you've got to kind of go, oh, it's a bit like this. And that's one of the reasons to go back to. 
everything everywhere all at once. Try describing that film like any other film. You can't. It's almost impossible to describe it in terms of, oh, if you liked... I mean, I, I struggle to recommend it to anyone. I mean, I'll tell everyone to watch it, but I can't say, oh, if you like blah, 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 mm. you'll absolutely love this. There's a lot of films, kind of, even my favourite films in the universe, Blade Runner, 2001, Metropolis, all of those, you can say, well, actually, if you like X, you'll like Y. You can't do mm. that. And and I take that, because I hadn't noticed, I hadn't really taken that kind of dichotomy with the, the headline in. But yeah, the opposite of Schadenfreude. Oh, ooh, what's this? What's this? I need, I need to know. Oh, clickbait, I tell you. Louise, clickbait. Yeah, click, I know. Call it and out. It works. It works, isn't it? it? That's the thing. Clickbait <laughs> it's works. Really annoying. It's um, really annoying. Well, that's kind of, yes. There's, um, but, yeah, I was just thinking something. I think I think it's gone. That, that what you just said about not being able to recommend. Oh yes. Um, everything, everywhere, all at once, and and there's the because what came up for me when you said that is any way I try to describe it, I feel like I'm missing the important nuance. I'm I'm kind of having to cut out or bracket out or just park for a minute an important nuance about it um like you know it demands uh at least a five minute discussion and even then you're not going to capture all of it and and that's a little bit what i was where what i was thinking about what i was saying earlier about doing violence to words is as soon as you can label and categorize something um you run the risk of kind of forgetting or or ignoring you but you basically you're kind of you're taking some of its nuance and, and uniqueness and kind of some of its context and history and, you know, kind of all the connections and associations reaching out into the world. And you're kind of hiding them or cutting them off mm. or kind of saying, well, you know, that's not important. You know, I guess we do it all the time when we speak all the time and when we categorise, when we move through the world. I guess we do that all the time anyway. But there's, I could just can feel my slight anxiety and sadness about, losing all of the or not attending to all of the nuance not you know choosing what to include and what not to include what to highlight and what not to highlight and and we do that without even thinking about it all the time yeah there was last episode we were talking about critical ignoring oh where were we i'm putting the the guardrails around around that and our our kind of experience and i mean it reminds me of uh, i think i mentioned this last podcast Podcast as well, um, but so another podcast I listened to, a Zen Studies podcast, and so did Zen Buddhist teachers got the podcast. It's really interesting. It's kind of twenty-five, twenty-eight minute episodes, so really digestible. But again, talking about the idea of as soon as you name something, you fix it, and mm-hmm. you fix it in a reality. This is a rock, therefore that is not a rock. Mm. But rock is it's subjective. Da, 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 da. And yeah, actually putting those guardrails and bounds around language can help us. It can be. It is how we need to get through the day. I mean, if I if I point to something, and go ugh, um, you might not know whether I like it, don't like it, want to eat it, want to throw it, want to do something. Whereas if I'm like, I would like to eat that cake. I've given you a very guarded mm, cake. Uh, given you a very guarded bounded <laughs> um, for food. Why do you always come back to food with me? I don't know. It's, um, it's dinner time, isn't it? I think that's it, it is. This is this is the thing. Um, but yeah, so we need that. But yes, and trying to capture those nuances in words can't possibly do i mean yeah mm. you try, try to describe a landscape in one word beautiful well i describe i've been known to describe a cup of tea as beautiful because it tastes nice uh as opposed mm. to what it looks like and yeah it, it's hard it is really hard 
especially when language keeps changing. Yeah. Well, do you know when I'm I'm reminded I have anyone who's listened to this podcast will have heard me mention um the biography of Jacques Derrida that I've been reading a few times because it's taken me bloody months. <laughs> I have I have completed phase one. I've hey. read the book all the way through once. Oh my god! Congratulations. It's years um and then that's partly because i kept putting it down and being frightened of picking up <laughs> um it's not a long book it's not a long book and it's not even an especially difficult book considering the subject matter but i have i have as i said i said to my partner who bought it me as a gift i said i've i've completed reading it the first time around and i'm like i don't think that means i've completed reading it by the way that's the wrong word but i i have i've gone once around it um and and part of my understanding of his deconstruction is his his technique um deconstruction is it's all about trying to reclaim that lost nuance or or at least if not reclaiming it interrogating it understanding what what the what some of the decisions were around the kind of polarities of you know this word versus that word so like male female for example you know male the distinctions between words words that kind of are opposites if you like trying to understand some of the cultural and social and functional kind of assumptions and decisions that create the this the structure of language so i think yeah so i i would say that he was very much interested in, in kind of interrogating some of that nuance that gets kind of damped down or or blocked out or hidden when we fix and label. Hmm. It's fine. It's navigating our way through those. Mm. Yeah. That's the trick. I find the untranslatable words are, are so nice. But it does, it reminds me of something else we were going to have a natter about, about the, um, an article from Washington Post. Yes. About algo, yeah, the internet algo speak and yes. changing language in real time, which I find fascinating. And kind of keep an eye on it's um it's noticed a bit over the years. Early Twitter was quite good for reappropriating different bits of language and the shortening of the, of the old hundred and forty character limit. Do you remember mm. hundred and forty characters? So long ago. Um and obviously other other platforms do the same, but how the speed of the change now is increasing. I, mean, I remember in the probably late mid 90s i suppose kind of leet speak so the original kind of gun gamer hacker speak changing mm. normally changing letters for numbers so hello would be h h3110 uh, for example yes. so visually you'd see it but it wouldn't get picked up on then quite rudimentary search terms and, mo- and moderation terms there's a really interesting piece in the washington post about how language is changing especially online really quickly to evade more and more detection and more and more detection software and it's not always a bad thing i think the um i'm pretty sure that the article picks out women's health for example um as well as one lgbtqia bipoc and various other communities but for example certain platforms and i think um i think facebook was one of these meta as it is now if you can refuse to call it meta i'm stuck in facebook um but talking about how i think users are referring to nipples as nip-nops because nipples became a banned word okay and you'd like yes. algorithms please most people on this planet have them yes it's it's not necessarily a whole thing 
Yeah. Be sensible. And so language is changing. I know we talked before about things like Polari, the LGBTQIA, um, specifically kind of getting them in London back in the 60s and whatever, and definitely kind of teenagers' language, that kind of slang, that patois, that thing people drop in and out of. And again, a little bit like um, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Everything's coming back to that film. Yeah, Just that it, melding it and Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yeah, exactly. But that melding of language and the changing of language to either assimilate with the community, fit, fit in, or have conversations inside other conversations mm. as well. And yeah, so I think it was a good piece in the in the Washington Post and just saying that, yeah, just the speed of the speed of the change because of things like um, algorithmic censorship, I suppose, taking out certain words that you look at and go, really? Are you, why? Mm. What, what's happening here? And then not necessarily slow words or rude words like nipples. I can say that. I've never said nipples so many times on a podcast. Um, <laughs> My goodness. But things like that, or terms to do with women's health, for example, these are not terms that should be banned. And yet yeah. the algorithms are, are taking them out. Um, and I think it uses a, a thing from a gamer community about talking about role-playing games. And when you kill, I'll get moderated for that, uh, but when you, you kill a character in one of these games, then they're having to call it unaliving because... YouTube is demonetizing anything that says kill because obviously killing is a bad thing. Um, so yeah. yeah, just it's just interesting to see that that change driven by technology and how that's then being maybe adopted into other parts of speech and culture. Yeah, so it, I definitely I'm definitely getting there's an element of um, avoiding and kind of subverting the censorship element of of an algorithm that you know is it right you know these words this list of words you know will, will not appear on is there also an element of avoiding surveillance mm. um because i'm guessing that that would that would be part of well, being you know being able to have conversations um and they're you know they're and to know or to it to be more less likely that you will be overheard or uh, monitored you know, because certain you know certain words you could be picking up certain words an algorithm could be picking up and monitoring certain words couldn't it yeah and i mean it comes back to something we've touched on quite a few times in who moderates the moderators or who yeah. moderates the algorithms and so on. i know mm. early on again i think one of our sort of first season episodes we were talking about the language of emoji and how you mm. can have someone's written shakespeare in emoji and you can actually get the gist of what on earth is going on um although it's not a language per se, you can have conversations and sentences and, I don't know, smiley face, thumbs up, something or other. Yeah. You look at it and go, I understand, I understand what's going on. I understand the thing that's being transmitted, even if it's not in the words you would expect. Mm. But it is amazing. That's what you've changed. You know, the, the surveillance piece, so often by marginalised peoples, um, yeah. an ability to use the platforms that everyone else is allowed to use, but getting around censorship and motivation and avoiding algorithms it's not always so it's not always a bad thing it's a can be a language of resistance oh, yeah absolutely well, it, people also do it as well the algorithms are going to be in you know we're going to be biased that that that's a fact the algorithms are going to be biased because they're made by people and people have biases particularly you know groups of people particularly dominant groups of people we you know we have biases and we sometimes we're aware of them sometimes we're not so yeah that is really interesting and it's um I think it just keeps reminding me of there was a, a teen forum that I was a member of when I was a teenager, so some time ago now. It was an American forum called Livewire. And okay. um, 
the 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 owner of the site had set up um some code that switched out some words so anything that was considered a, a swear word would be replaced with um kebab i think it's supposed to be kebab but kebab so it's yeah i can remember that yep. kebab just popping up everywhere hilarious and you get used to it and then perhaps yeah, even start. And then, and then it becomes part of the mythology and the law of yeah. the site you know kebab takes on its own meaning <laughs> um and i'm also reminded of um the there's a couple of emojis that are used with rude connotations so the aubergine and the peach emoji um oh, yes. mean other things which i'm i'm not i'm not gonna say because i'll get embarrassed but um and I, I i've followed the museum bums account on twitter for a long time they, oh, make, yeah. they make very good use of the peach emoji they use it all the time <laughs> amazing but it's it is also sub languages that start popping up yeah yeah well. and and it's and that's fascinating um <laughs> and and what what I find funny is that um so you know our our girls who were either you know kind of at the at the top end of the teenage range or even not even teenage anymore I think I alluded to earlier on occasion they just act like they own internet speak or you know whatever the latest brand of internet be or you know whatever the latest lingo or thing and it's true that I don't understand the 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 nuance of of how they use language and what they're saying i don't but i also they they kind of i don't think they can believe that we you know my partner and i might have had our own moment of doing that when we were their age they just you know they just can't quite believe it it must only be theirs because they're really cool and and we're really old <laughs> it's that first time is new thing isn't it but it's yeah i mean it's not it's not necessarily a new thing but the speed speed of change Speed of change is different, great. and yeah, and the the ways it manifests. So, I mean, people you know, people have had people have had kind of inside secret languages for Cockney Rhyming Slam is a really good yeah. example. Um, for, you know, for a long time, which which is utterly incomprehensible unless you know it, um, because the, although it's based on rhymes, the, it isn't the rhyming part that's spoken. So, if you don't know that syrup of figs or syrup means wig because syrup of figs and it's like yeah. i find this fascinating because i don't my other half knows much more than i do and i don't know i find it absolutely fascinating it's been a thing for a long time like you say the pace of change is different and the tech you know we're using technology differently aren't we yeah and i love it i think it's i think it's great actually i just it seems like it opens up so many possibilities yeah. but at the same time it is quite it's quite tricky to navigate so oh, okay there's something new Something new going on. But yeah, people will always want to have conversations, hopefully. Um, and people will always want to have their own private conversations in public forums. And it just seems to be a way of, of weaving that through. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And long, yeah, long may it continue. Absolutely. Hurrah! Hurrah for the changing of the language. But that yeah. also then reminds me of something else we were going to talk about. This is all very remindy, remindy. And for once it doesn't, for once it doesn't revolve around a movie. Look at that. Um... Yes, you shared a, a podcast, um, Emotion at Work podcast. It did, episode. yes. And the reason, it, the reason it rings true or rings through is that the links on there, and I'll be honest, I haven't had a chance to listen to the episode. I keep meaning to, and other things have, have been going on. Um, but the references and links all seem to be about inclusion. And obviously mm. language can be quite exclusionary. If, mm. And obviously if like, you're, a, you're a, a naughty person, I don't like you, or you speak in a, a sub 
language of mm. Algo speak or, or Leet speak or whatever people don't understand. So it just, yeah, I was just like, oh, interesting. So the thing you shared, all about this kind of inclusion, workplace incivility. Yeah. Ty Selassie's TED Talk about Don't Ask Where I'm From. And I was like, tell me more about this. Tell me more, Louise. I oh, love the sound it, of this episode. Well, so this is the um, the absolutely fascinating um Phil Wilcox, who is the founder of Emotion at Work, and so this they they, run, they have a podcast series, and Phil talks to Phil talks to people, HR people, who are doing you know interesting things with their organisations, and actually this this particular episode, um, is the name is it name Angela, is it Angela yes. Day? That's it. Who is um, head of people risk and compliance at a company called Mosul Market Operator Services Limited. Now, I was fascinated by this because actually it's it's a very engineering kind of heavy company, and they you know they're not always known for their HR function, engineering. And that's not to say it's not to say that there aren't engineering or science companies that aren't you know don't have great HR, but it's not the first thing you would think of. Um, but they're they're a relatively small company, and they work. They're part of the water industry, but they're not really consumer facing. Okay. They're kind of business. They're business. They're more business to business. Now, the fine details of it elude me because I was listening to it. I think at about four in the morning some weeks ago when I couldn't sleep. But um, Phil and Angela have this great conversation um, where he brings some thoughts about the importance of clarity at work clarity about what the what the purpose is what you're supposed to be doing but also clarity in how we communicate he asked some great questions about uh, apparently when when he's got kind of bringing new people into the business or he's working with new people he kind of part of the orientation is having a conversation about what works best for me in the workplace in terms of receiving feedback and you know kind of one-to-ones and you know kind of almost like a what's my operating manual how, how can if I were joining your company Neil how can you know, the question would be how can um you get the best out of me what do I need from you to to kind of to operate really well um which I think is fantastic and he goes so far as to say and what happens when we piss each other off how do we deal with that and I think it's genius actually to to first admit it's going to happen acknowledge it's going to yeah. happen and secondly to open up a space to talk about how we might deal with it before we get into a really emotionally charged situation I think is great so they talk a bit about clarity and that made me realize that um I think that I've I've worked in many many places where I've not had anywhere near enough clarity and I've had to mm. kind of figure out what I can for myself which that I think is a quite an exclusionary kind of um situation to be operating in to to not have enough clarity to feel safe and confident about what you're doing and how you're doing it and also to feel unable to ask for clarity so there's something Mm. about kind of you know what 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 i as an employee expect i can and can't ask for but also what the culture kind of suggests i can and can't ask for so i think that that was interesting and there was another kind of element of the podcast that was Angela was talking about inclusion in the workplace and, and some of the things that they'd brought in. And so um, I think if I remember rightly, she she said about having kind of a, a group of 
advocates um, who are kind of a, a subgroup of, of people from across the company with different backgrounds and experiences who kind of meet to discuss and talk about you know issues around inclusion around what people need in the workplace um, and that kind of that operates is kind of run by that group of people rather than being something that's kind of uh, nudged or pushed too heavily from the senior leadership team that kind of operates does it not does its own thing but kind of has have some autonomy so it is very much from the people of the of the company very much from from the employees um and she says something else about you know if if the purpose is clear and the role is clear and you've recruited you know well with a clear role a clear job description clear organizational mission then actually kindness um and just trusting people to get on with it really works trusting people to get on with their jobs trusting people that you know if if they're struggling it's not because there's malintent or anything like that it's because you know they need some support in some way and I just thought that was I just loved the way she put it she was both incredibly clear and very compassionate in how she spoke about it and that really that really really came through so yeah it's fun I've spoken quite a lot about it I feel like I've said a lot of words but it was a really really interesting listen and I would recommend any anyone who works with people um, should give it a listen basically so that's kind of all of us isn't it it sounds fabulous yeah and interesting what you said about cl- that piece around clarity actually rings really true for me and thinking back across a number of book kind of my career experiences yes there are times when you're working in unclear situations because that's just what it is but if you can find a nugget of clarity of where you're going, of something, actually makes everything a lot simpler. It makes everything much easier. It's much easier to have conversations when things are clear. Mm-hmm. Using the same language to mm-hmm. lead weave back to our, our previous one. But and you can develop compassion, I think, when things are have that clarity. I think it can be difficult because otherwise non clarity unclarity is very confusing. And that can, I don't, don't know about you, that could be quite a difficult space to really develop compassion into. Mm, takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? Working in a space where there isn't clarity, you have to spend it. I mean, for me, I was reflecting on this the other day. I, I feel like I work, I, I am capable of working quite well in some kind of forms of, of chaos and, and lack of clarity. Um. <laughs> partly because I'm just quite comfortable with quite a high level of uncertainty and and stress and yeah you know that is stressful it's stressful to not quite know what you're doing not know if you're doing the right thing not know who's supporting you or what support you've got um thinking that you might be criticized later by someone else who's got a different vision that is incredibly stressful and it does make me wonder how much more can we achieve when you take away that stress and when you increase the psychological safety um you know when people feel safe and happy they do have a lot more space for compassion so what you know what more would be possible if more of us were working in environments where we felt safer and more supported and were much clearer on what we're supposed to be doing interesting really interesting point about psychological safety Mm. as well i think that I'm just thinking back to a specific place you and I worked together that mm. wasn't very psychologically safe um, in, in quite a, no. a lot of it, unless you kind of found your little tunnels through the organisation. Um, 
but where the unclarity must be another word. I'm going to stay with unclarity, but unclarity was used as as, as smoke and mirrors, literally, and yeah. as a shield around mm. things that had basically no chance of ever happening, no bloody sense to them, but because there were lots of big words and bullshit baffles brains, um, they kind of got through. And actually, that was not a, that wasn't a space where you could have dialogue. That was just yeah. a, people were just monologuing at you pretty much all the time using all these big words. And it was just, it was like peering through smoke. And it's mm. really hard to get anything done, really hard to feel psychologically safe, really hard to feel rewarded, whether your rewards are intrinsic or extrinsic, and so on. Mm. So I'm excited to have a listen to this episode now. It, really, it looked interesting at first. I was like, oh, I'm going to wait and see exactly why, but really fascinated yeah. to have a listen now. Definitely have a listen, because I also, I feel like there's a lot in there that I've kind of skimmed over. Um, okay. So I feel like there's a lot more lurking in there, and there's some you know it's a bit of a theme of this podcast but there's lots of nuance there that i you know i haven't picked up partly because i've forgotten it uh partly because it's just you know the way my my brain works and my what you know what stuck with me what really what really kind of went in and i so just on on that workplace um without mentioning any names i have a particular memory of a meeting that we were both in and this was you may not remember this and and that's absolutely fine but i was picked up by a director on a particular word i used in front of the whole group not not in an overtly shaming way but i was interrogated on why i'd chosen that word quite you know quite subtly but it was def i felt it because i remember it this many years later and it was i found that extremely uncomfortable i felt that i had done something wrong and actually i you know i was just trying to convey an idea um i hadn't used a word that was offensive it wasn't at all an offensive word it was a perfectly normal run of the mill word i think the word i used was expert um and i was picked up on but because there was prevailing culture around this kind these kind of words and um and something about you know kind of alienating some people some groups of people with that word which which i did understand um but yeah the way i think it was probably the way it was raised and brought i felt really small and i you know i didn't really want to well, i wanted to vet everything i was going to say and run it through some you know several internal filters before speaking which which makes it quite difficult to work together honestly if you're if you're so worried about every word you might say Absolutely. I think I remember that, actually. Now you're describing it, I was like, yeah, I think I, I think we may have discussed it afterwards, and I think I may have felt it too, but yeah. Probably did, because you were an excellent, excellent kind of colleague, well, you were my kind of sponsor, weren't you, in that organisation, and, and the thing that, that really made the difference for me was being able to check in with you about stuff afterwards, and we could have a human-to-human conversation about it, and that, that kind of made it all, made it all a lot safer. Go out for a coffee, get shizzle sorted. Yes, yeah. Do some real work and actually make some decisions and figure out some directions. <laughs> do some communications work. That's always a fun <gasps> oh, job. Oh, communications work? Gosh, gosh, you're pushing it there. <laughs> I know. Oh, lordy. You know, those thems were the days. But yeah, that piece of unclarity, it's, yeah, it's easy to, it's easy to get lost in unclarity. And actually it's, it's hard. It's in, like you say, it's energy sapping. It's really, really difficult. It's, it's exhausting and it and you know the work of getting clear on what we mean what we mean when we say stuff what what we're aiming for is hard work it comes back to didn't you didn't you share something a while ago about the importance of strategy 
the importance of taking time for strategy. And it kind of goes back to that. You, you kind of have to step back from the day-to-day and the tasks and the, the transactional stuff or the stuff that feels like... You have to step back from the stuff that feels like getting stuff done to agree your common frame of reference, your common language, your purpose, you know, where you're going, how you think you're, you're going to get there given the prevailing conditions. You have to step back and do that to really go to really go any any distance and it can be very very hard to do that because many of us want to jump into the doing that's very true and actually you've just made me think of something else in that it sort of explores ones i talk so bear with clarity can be really exposing so if you have the obfuscation of the long words the mm. 57 page document that says nothing that can't be said in three pages um mm-hmm. to be clear to be clear about something so i want x to happen by y i mean probably a bit mm. nicer than that but actually that's diff that's difficult and i think there's a measure then of you create psychological safety through clarity everyone knows where they stand everyone knows that it is safe to put their hands up ask questions and stuff that but also the person doing the ask or putting the ask out into the universe or the request or direction in some cases, they need a level of psychological safety as well. Mm. So they know that either it's not going to be bitten back completely at them or that the other people in the various chains and, and ecosystems and relationships, they will have their back at the same time. It's easy to hide behind the long words because no one can ever pull you up on it to be really clear and say, my value proposition is... Boom. To go back to what you were saying earlier about bounding things in language and giving something mm. a, a word, and a, as soon as you give it a word, it has a, a thing in a space in the universe that defines it from not thing. That's difficult, and that requires different forms of psychological safety and leadership. And I don't know, there mm. must there must be stuff out there written about it and talked about it, but I can't off the top of my head pull any to mind. That's such a beautiful. I just love that, Neil. It's just such a beautiful distillation that you know to be clear to ask for what you want or set out your value proposition or your stall you know as a leader or in any sphere of life to, to be very clear that this is what you want by this time this is how we're going to achieve our ambition in the world you know this this and this done in this way in this time frame it is difficult, yeah. It is very exposing, and and for me, it comes right back to the challenge of just clearly articulate articulating our needs, even in the most smallest and most intimate of spaces. You know, just with the people we love, saying this, you know, this is this is what I can do, what I am, what what I want, what I need right now. I need this. I this is what I can't handle right now. Being able to have those conversations just in the in the very kind of, you know, in the real personal one-to-one space is also incredibly difficult and very exposing. And and yet I think I think the courage to be clear is the thing that creates the psychological safety. Interesting. One that then there's a causal link in between the two then. I think so. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's much easier to be clear when you're in a safe feeling environment. Um, and yet, I also think that there's something about being clear that kind of that also creates the 
creates a safer environment and this so for me there'd be something about how can I find the safety in myself to be okay to be clear about what I want and need either as you know as an individual in a personal relationship or as a leader how can I find that in myself to know that even if the world doesn't get me even if I'm ridiculed actually I'm still okay as a person interesting that's a real dimension in leadership and to have mm. that to have that clarity of vision as you just just put out there that's yeah that's a really a bit of a really strong leadership position i mean you are a leader um but i yeah, I've just i've been making some notes you've been talking about how can i find safety in myself to be clear what mm. a question what mm. interesting question Mm. Also, I'm going to do a very quick plug then. That that question, how can I find safety myself, comes from some work I've been doing um, on a, an online course on polyvagal theory and oh, learning yeah. to understand your nervous system. So, um, yeah, which so the idea being that our physical states determine how ready you know determined so much about you know how we're perceiving the world the stories we tell ourselves about the world you know if I'm kind of in a calm grounded centered state then I you know I feel much safer in myself um basically and there's kind of you know different different kind of states that we can be in and ways that we can start to learn how to shift our state so we can therefore shift so and that then so we don't because trying to calm yourself down or trying to change the kind of stories that you tell unconsciously by willpower is one exhausting and not very effective (laughs) so going back to the physiological and back to the okay can I start to understand and catch a bit more of what's going on for me what triggers me into a frightened place what triggers me into you know flight fright freeze um because if you kind of can get get to the kind of the physiological level then you've got you've got a lot more to work with in terms of shifting your unconscious kind of where you go to unconsciously interesting i've heard of polyvagal theory not mm-hmm. don't know a lot about it so I, I sense a wikipedia rabbit hole coming yeah do have a look there's kind of i think there's some um, i think that some of the some of the kind of physical and physiological evidence for it may you know it is still it may be it may still be a little bit sparse um but certainly in, t- in practical terms i'm finding that it's both interesting and useful nice and i was involved in a discussion on linkedin recently i can't remember what it was something to do with showing emotion at work and i ended up getting into a very long discussion which is lovely and and um actually made a new connection out of it um we're talking about kind of pr the pr of that pr face that kind of when you've got yes. a journalist shouting down the phone at you or shouting across a, a room at you keep that keep neutral face i'm i'm here i'm open i'm ready to do it but not letting don't cry on camera my, mm. my motto let it not letting the things inside bubble out because that will change the dynamic and change the nature of the relationship and will always get you somewhere so it yeah it's a fa- it's a fascinating a fascinating area of interest and research yeah. Oh, look at that weaving polyvagal theory in. I I know what it, it's just I just find myself kind of with so many different influences and conversations going on. Really, this year I'm really appreciating the power of community and networks and being in different conversations and weaving. You know, just and that stuff just it just comes into my 
work and my thoughts and my conversations and it's fabulous nice enriching yes and speaking of which in two minutes i know we've run slightly over the hour but i do want to quiz you on rss speaking about information flows yes. and enriching and stuff so rss really simple syndication back in the noughties it was it was a thing do you use it have you used it where are you on rss i have a reason for the question i know of it um i have looked at it but i've never actually got into using it and i and i'm wondering if i'm missing a trick here in terms of gathering information that might be useful and interesting i do you know i've all but given up on social media it's not true um but i'm using social media even mastodon which i do find lovely i've just kind of moved away from using social media quite a lot i just kind of go in and dip in and skim twitter maybe instagram and i might spend a bit longer on mastodon but i used to be you know checking several times a day now i can go several days without looking at all and so i am wondering about you know ways to bring information to me that that don't involve doom scrolling basically I can recommend RSS. So it, I was thinking about it. And I've used I've used RSS since I don't know mid to mid early two thousands. I am one of there was an article like two articles popped up in a very short space of time which repiqued my interest in what other people talk about it. Um, one of them called those of us who continue to use RSS a persistently stubborn corner of the internet. Thank you very much. <laughs> but it kind of, it kind of got me thinking. It's the 90s, this, isn't it? I know, but look, rather like yourself, I've, my social media use has changed. I've pretty much left it. I've shut up my Twitter account until the, the billionaire baby pisses off and, and goes to annoy somebody else and, and things settle back down. We, we get some good stuff going back on. Uh, Facebook, I stomped off a while ago. I've got an account for work, but I don't really use it. LinkedIn, I love, but I need to put cognitive effort into it. And Mastodon, I really enjoy it. And I sort of dip in and dip out and just and, and have chats with people. But, and I know... Early on on the internet, there was a lot of kind of subscribed to newsletters, and I've, I've got loads of newsletter subscriptions. And then people were like, oh, you can follow us on whatever social media platforms. You follow on social media platforms. It rolls up, and there's so much content. It is everything everywhere Why all not? at once. And <laughs> it was interesting. I, I, I there's a link. Um, but I, I, put, so I posed the question out to, to LinkedIn, tagged a few people in, and, and uh, Nidra, uh, good friend Nidra, so I said that she used to love RSS and kind of Again, back in the good old days of blogging, um, when the when those of us were writing, we were writing kind of lots and so on, and it was a really good way of kind of syndicating content out there. But then drifted across into sort of social media and, and following people there, um, and she actually said, and quote on LinkedIn, she said, "I'm I was so washing content, I don't feel need to to bring anything to me." RSS, I think, is the antidote to that, and I, I was getting really quite um, excited again, about RSS, because, and there was a link to Mastodon, my poor brain, adult brain is all in there, trying to get out. Essentially, onto Mastodon runs on hashtags. Hashtags are the way you find things on Mastodon because you can't search like Twitter. It's not set up mm. to do the same thing. Someone described hashtags as the wormholes of, the, of Mastodon. You click on one and you go into this whole place. Oh, yeah. And there's all, nice. I was like, like it. And I thought, RSS. So whenever you log on to a website, whenever you go, log on, my God, I'm a Millennial. Um, that was one of those other words we hated. Whenever you go onto a website, you're served with ads. <laughs> Everything is ad driven. You don't quite know often, maybe know where to look, especially in 
some of the best web design websites, but everything is being served at you all the time. It's kind of quite hard to find your tunnel through. The internet, I think, has become a very impersonal place where it's hard to follow stuff you're interested in, especially mm-hmm. with, I mean, like social media. By the time you follow, I don't know, let's say good, the bad old days of Twitter, 500 accounts who are relatively active, one or two posts a day, that's thousands you've got to scroll through. It's just coming at you all the time. The alternative, of course, is to sign up by email. My inbox is one of my inboxes is over two hundred deep of things That's that I need. I think I, I need to read. Was RSS? It's really interesting. RSS. You subscribe to feeds. So, like, I don't know if you read the Guardian, you could subscribe to their health feed or their climate feed. But you don't have to subscribe to the news feed, for mm. example. You can tailor your experience in a way that you just can't do pretty much every everywhere else. And I was like, actually, this piece. When you just said about people watching your content, I was like. I use RSS to monitor over a hundred different websites and I use it at work to monitor clients and some of those clients, they don't have email newsletter subscriptions. So the only way I can normally check to see if they've updated their news stories is to go to their website. Boring. Get it coming to me in one place. So I posed the question. I thought it was really interesting. Post it out to LinkedIn. With people who want to on LinkedIn, they don't use RSS. Several of them said, I don't, didn't even realise RSS was still a thing. Didn't think, think it existed. 65% said never use. I was like, oh... Mastodon, however, did completely different community. Um, smaller number of people who answered, but fifty nine percent of them said regularly, three plus times a week. Interesting. And just really yeah, interesting, interesting the difference in communities. But again, I kind of got quite oh, the word is the word has gone quite excited, quite um, passionate about it as a way to filter. And again, I agree with you. You get so much up social media and all kind of. The news is coming at you. Everything's coming at you all the time. How do you filter this thing? Actually, mm. RSS is a 25-year-old bit of technology that allows you to curate your own internet experience. And I've been thinking about that a lot with the move to Mastodon because, again, mm. Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Insta, to a point, don't use it a huge amount, um, Insta to a point, it's, al- it's all algorithmic. The algorithm mm. tells you what, you are going to view next unless you manage to somehow break the algorithm and retrain the algorithm and do all of that really boring stuff that takes months to do. You are told where to go, what to look at, how to look at it, and in what order. RSS, mm. meanwhile, you're like, I'm going to subscribe to this. I mean, I've got subscriptions to like The Daily Good, The Atlantic, uh, Behavioral Scientist, a um, couple of urbanism blogs in America. It serves me what I want in the order I want it. I can skip. And I'm like, actually, countercultural, that was it. In an age where the algorithm seems to be throwing everything at you, RSS seems to be a way of going, no, this is my internet, this is my space, this is my eyeballs. I'm going to curate it the way I want to. That's my sales pitch, RSS. Fascinating. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think I need to ask you about how I could set up rss feeds because i think it's something that i will struggle with on my own but it also sounds like something that once i've kind of got it will be incredibly useful and will probably decrease quite a lot of stress from trying to keep on top of newsletter subscriptions which i just don't i don't as i'll be honest i I don't i end up deleting a lot of stuff that actually i probably am interested in and i would like to read but you know what it's just coming at me continuously and i just can't it's too much yeah, I mean, I'm exactly the same. So one one inbox is over 200, another is 50 or 60 deep. I've got, an, again, another one. I've got a research one that's 400 deep now. And eventually, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just delete them. Because you can't, because again, email, you have to click into to see if you're interested in it. 
I would say it's at least it's it's news headlines. But also, I mean, and I know I fully accept that people like getting you on their email subscription list because often there's never an email or there's some form of monetization that helps to support the content. And I I fully get that. But from a user experience, it's that kind of it's almost minimalism, it's simplicity. It's actually let's get back to the heart of the internet, which one of the directors at the previous place we both worked did call a serendipity engine. And I really like that. Because looking across my feedly in the mornings when I'll have, I don't know, you can get through 500 headlines in the space of a cup of coffee and a bowl of porridge, literally just checking it out. But you see links, you start to see links, you start to see patterns, and it's really weird. Mm. I started to think about RSS, okay, confirmation bias, but suddenly two articles popped up from two completely different feeds, and I'll, I'll link them in the show notes, about RSS. And then you start to see other bits, so different I don't know if you subscribe to some UK media outlets, some US ones, and ones from around the world. Suddenly, you can occasionally catch really weak signals of things like, oh, three or four really distributed people are talking about this, or it's popped up on a, I don't know, the Daily Good, which takes stuff from positive literature, and, and it's popped up on the Atlantic, and it's popped up in the Guardian, always popped up to us. Is there something going on that at scale you'd have to read? hundreds of websites a day but you can literally just sit and just click down 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 oh there's a pattern i think you should teach people how to do this because this sounds like some <laughs> kind of um some kind of dark magic to me it's kind of Whoa. being able to zoom out zoom right out and taking a, a much wider picture and still be able to zoom in to an article or a, you know a kind of an opinion piece or whatever it might be when you need to which I think it's trying to figure out how we best do that with the scale of information and the technology at our disposal is quite yeah. something. It's it's chaos. I mean, I'll, I'll link the article from the Atlantic and I'll link the other one mm. as well. One of them has got quite a good guide because RSS, for example, you can subscribe, you can get the RSS feed for your favourite band on YouTube. Mm. So as well as so in the middle of... When you're scrolling, depending on how you order things, it could be like Guardian article, BBC article, Daily Good article, YouTube article. So that kind of serendipity you can get, whereas otherwise you're in quite a monoculture of something. Um, mm. But yeah, I'll, I'll happily, I'll happily share what what I kind of know and have gleaned from all years. I can't believe it's been about twenty years at the start of using RSS. It was ridiculous, but yeah, I, I love it, and I'd, I'd love to know from other people actually if they have that that kind of love hate thing with it or just move on and it might be that social is is the place i mean again if you subscribe to everyone and all your friends on whatever social platform how easy is is it to disaggregate the content go oh i'm interested in doing a bit of work now as opposed to oh i'm catching up friends now how can how can we create that space how can we make the internet work for us louise that's my big question that i think and that is a very important question and i just i just feel like i'm kind of thinking of you as you know as as a, a kind of wisdom a gatekeeper or kind of wisdom <laughs> gatherer in in this particular area i feel like this is this is your space that i think you have an awful lot to share about how we make the internet work for us how we navigate it how we can shift kind of shift away from being driven by the algorithms to making choices for ourselves and, and understanding better how you know how we can interact with the technology that we do have I, I really feel like you've kind of this is kind of this is the thing that you've been doing all along all the time no matter what else you're doing you're doing this so I feel like you have a lot to give and to share on this topic oh, thank you that's very kind 
It's called my geek feed. <laughs> but that's it for you. It's, it's geekery. But for the rest of us, it's like wow, okay, <laughs> magic. Guy, you know, I think you've got something really, really valuable to share there. Oh, thank you. I shall, I shall ponder on how to, to do that actually. Because I'd, I'd love to. I get so. Oh, you can tell I get really passionate about making it work, making things yeah. work for people, for human beings. So I love that. I'm going to have a think about that. Now you've inspired me. Thank you. Do yeah, because I'm really excited to hear where you might, you know, how you might manifest that in the world. Awesome. Mm. On that note. On that note, it's possibly time to start manifesting some dinner. I think that's probably the case. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) An absolutely fabulous conversation um, with some kind of just really, really lovely flow and energy to it. Thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And it has been everything everywhere all at once. Blinking well has, hasn't it? All right, you well, till next time. Till the next. Look after yourself. Take care. Bye. Bye.